So the Shillington Design School was the bridge where I was like, okay, let me take this and take these classes part-time for the whole year and then build a portfolio. And that was where I just learned like how these images are really made and I get to do it, you know, before I was critiquing it from a media perspective, but now I'm in it to understand like how people really visual design affects everything that you deal with from this. It was the first time it was introduced to me as art as a way to design for solutions. So if there's a, if that even a stop sign, that is a work of design. We need to let people to know the problem is that we need people to not run into each other at the corner and to like pause for a second so they can see cars are coming on either way. What can we do there visually for people to see that no matter where you are, you know, what language you know, you can kind of understand color red makes you stop, you know, like you're like, what's going on? This must be a warning sign. This week's guest, Linda Rislin, is evidence of how life's path leads us in directions we could never have planned. In Linda's case, a visual designer turned open relationship coach. Born to Haitian parents in New Jersey, Linda grew up in an intergenerational home at the intersection of diverse cultures. In part one, Linda discusses the early years, her Catholic education, her immersion in American culture, and the clash with Haitian values. She explains the influence of her parents on her character development, her mother's faith and her father's levity. Linda discusses how growing up with scarcity guided her to seek financial security in a marketing role at Vimeo. Upon discovering how unfulfilled she felt, Linda describes her career migration into visual design and the resulting impact on her life satisfaction. We end part one there, and in part two, we cover Linda's journey into becoming an open relationship coach. Linda, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Hello, how are you? Very well. I'm in hot and hot and sweaty New York in Williamsburg, uh, and Bettina is somewhere in Italy, I think. Ah, uh, ooh, that's really nice. Yeah, I'm here in Buffalo, and it's really nice to be here too. It's a beautiful day. I'm just so excited just to like talk to you guys as well. So that's cool. So before we start, a shout out yeah. to Keith Kirkland who connected us. Said we should interview. Yes, you. So, yes, yes, Keith. yes. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. I love their conversation. Um, shout out to him. And if you've listened to their interview, you realize that we always start by trying to dive into our guests' background and the influence of their parents and siblings yeah. and other and other people that might have inspired them along their journey. So maybe you could just start by giving us a little overview. You've said you were born in Jersey. Is that Jersey City mm, or New Jersey? Uh, yeah. So technically I was born in Newark, but I was raised in East Orange and we moved to Montclair. It's where I ended up because my family now lives for over 30 years. And my family's influence. So my family's from Haiti. Family's from Haiti. And then I have an older brother that was born in Haiti. And then my parents migrated to the U.S., had me and my little sister and younger brother and I have another younger brother. And it's been really awesome because their influence, I think their influence is very much like future focused because they came here immigrating to the States. It was very much like survival mode, but I don't think I really recognized that honestly for a good part of my childhood. They did a really good job of kind of like shielding me from any hardship that I was aware of. I think I didn't recognize any challenges really until we moved from East Orange to Montclair. This is because East Orange is primarily Black community and in the, this time in the 80s, and it was mostly like West Indians, African-Americans, and people who are from Africa. So I'm in like, you know, Catholic private school. <laughs> I'm just surrounded. I have cousins that are in the mm-hmm. school. So I kind of came in my primary school years very much like 
with family. So I never really had to question anything and everyone was kind of like the same background. So a big part of this, which means is like my language, Creole, gets to be spoken out in public all the time. We then moved to Montclair when I'm nine, and that's when my first real culture shock. And <laughs> you're like, hello. <laughs> yeah, in the sense that, like, it's very much, I would say, like, 60% white, 40%, like, people of color. And in, in many ways, it opened up me to, like, new worlds of, like, just meeting a whole bunch of different types of people. However, it didn't show me a lot of what I was dealing with. So like as far as like, hey, you know, I know that when you see me, I'm a black person. However, I also have like, um, when you go to my home, it's like in my house, it's Haiti. Outside the house, I'm American. So that was the beginning of me recognizing the dual, like this dual, this intersection, I would say, mm-hmm. not duality, yeah. but an intersection of all these cultures and having to navigate it. And I remember just looking for a help. I was like, who, who gets what I'm going through? Except like, like my siblings, you know? When you say home was like in, in, at home, it was Haiti. Can you describe that? And just, yeah. I've, I've, got, I've never been to Haiti. I've been to certain ah, Caribbean yeah. countries. And right, obviously okay. my, and, and probably a lot of people <laughs> listening are, have an image or perception of it created by the media and because of some of the, obviously the oh, horrific yeah. stories you've seen from everything from Papa Doc to mm-hmm. um, um, voodoo to the earthquake, yes, and the mm-hmm. disasters that have happened there and obviously the abject poverty. But you would be great if you could give a more rounded, more a, a richer context to what yeah. Haitian culture is. Yeah. Well, I can speak to my specific situation because even in knowing that I'm realizing everyone is experiencing it differently, but we do have a lot of commonalities in that one, the language is a big thing, right? Like America is not, in my experience, a country that focuses on allowing different languages in public settings. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, if I need directions for anything. If my mom needs directions for anything, she heavily had to rely on us as her children to be our translators. We're like eight years old trying to take these legal paperwork that she's receiving about, you know, like the bills, like what is, what are they asking me for? And I'm like, okay, I can, yes, I can read it and give you a little translation, but the effect on you, I have no, you know what I mean? I don't know. So stuff like that, where there's a, in Haiti, meaning there's a lot of responsibility put on the children to like, really be to kind of like lead in as far as like translators, but also know their position as children, which is a really challenging thing to do when you feel like, oh, I know this English language in, this, in America better, but like you need me to navigate this yet. I need you as my parent to care for me, you know? So it's Haiti in the sense that like just food, our language, you know, like I remember, for example, just breakfast food in America is very much like, sweets it's very like having pancakes and syrups and like and at my house you just have boiled plantain with eggs and i'm like this is amazing with salt fish and it's like our food i couldn't even see outside in like my lunchroom there was it wasn't there you know we're heavy rice and beans culture again and that's how in montclair mm-hmm. i'm going to friends houses for play you know playtime and they're having like you know pasta and spaghetti and a different variety and i'm like mom <laughs> They're having all this other stuff like chicken nuggets. Let's just switch it up. And she's kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, no, you know, now I get how I just, it was the beginning of me trying to like assimilate, if that makes any sense. And like, and try to incorporate some American's culture in my home because I'm trying to 
blend in because I don't see myself out here. It might as well, it makes sense to more match it. But as far as like, you know, even values, for example, I grew up in an intergenerational home where my grandmother was, you know, you stay in the home until you get married. And it was like, so I got the benefit of having elders and seeing my mother be parented. And that was really helpful to see when my mom's being a daughter, she's being a daughter as well as, as much as she's, you know, I'm a being daughtered. So that was really big, especially when going to other friends' homes, it's very nuclear family. It's very mom, dad, you know, whoever is like your immediate family. It was rare that I find most people were like, oh, I'm going to my grandma's house, but they'd live in a whole other state. So I think that was something that was, you know, challenging at first where I was just like, there's all these people, my aunts and uncles, everyone's here, but now I value it. Back then I used to think like, you know, you know, is, are we just different? Is there something going on? And it would be until I would meet other friends that came from some other diaspora, you know, like I had a friend who was from Peru, her grandmother would be around. I'm like, okay, so it's not just us, you know, we have actually a lot of commonalities with so many other people. It's just that in the nuclear family mindset, those that were practicing it, there were so many ways that I didn't see myself. Mm -hmm. But the largest place I would say is the language. Creole, we're calling, Haiti's colonized by the French. So the French influence in America, they only landed, I think, in Louisiana area. Mm -hmm. So if you're not in New Jersey, it's not really the biggest thing unless you're part of the Haitian community to hear it. And that's where we got, I got the most comfort. Uh, as a matter of interest, why did they come to the Northeast and not head to Louisiana where there would have been a better assimilation of the culture? Right. Well, actually, initially the hope was to go to Montreal, Canada. Uh, yeah, that was that really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not for the, is, not for the weather though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. But what ends up happening is people just go where family, they already have family and we already had family here, you know? So it's just easier to migrate where you know someone and stay with them for a while. Yeah. And what did your mother and father do when they came here? So my mom took a lot of odd jobs. Like I feel like she was working mainly retail a lot for the, most of the time. And then my father was like doing, he's a sous chef for a while. And then eventually he was able to get into Essex County College. So he started there to get his associate's degree and eventually went to Rutgers. So he got to go I think he used it to start doing substitute teaching mm-hmm. as the main thing and then was a cab driver. So it was like having him do teaching and then also do like, you know, cab driving, which is a lot of people who are coming in from the States. You're kind of having to do work that's really off the books in many ways, mm-hmm. you know, they're just kind of like pay cash for that moment. And that was what they did. And what about their, I mean, you talk about the, the culture being sort of, well, is it fair to call it Creole culture or is it Haitian culture? Haitian. What was it like in terms of their, their levels of discipline and the way that they were guiding you? Obviously if your father's having to work two Mm -hmm. jobs, study, there must've been real pressure just to stay on top of (laughs) children who are trying to assimilate into American culture. Absolutely. I think a big part of it seemed like a lot of discipline was around education. So it was kind of like, your only job, it is made very clear, is to go to school and do well. Mm. That's all you're here to do. Anything that you think you want to do that will take you away from school is not happening. So it was like very much, it was very clear that education was the first thing that we wanted to be focused on. And as far as discipline, it would be, I feel like my parents were strict, but in many ways flexible. My mom was more like, 
she was synonymous with the word no. If you wanted anything, if you were like, hey, can I? No, you know, like she's just not here for children trying to like, you know, get one over on her. My father was the one that was like, although he was very stern, he was very playful, which was like a very, you know, very helpful for me because it made it seem like I could kind of talk to him and level with him in many ways. So if I wanted to do anything, like for example, go ice skating or like do anything that was cultural, like I was able to like negotiate with him and he would give me some leeway because he understood he came to the States first. So he was here for two years. And I think him being going through the education system here, he had an understanding of like the value of, I guess, social currency. Like the child needs to be able to navigate the people and not just be only in the house cooking, cleaning, and just like going to school. My mother, I think, would have preferred that I had, I think she tried to mimic. I don't even know if she preferred it really. I think she just mimicked what she was if she was the eldest daughter of like eight kids. So it was very much you get up early and cook and clean. Like I didn't have to you know, go to a lake to fetch water, you know what I mean? Or a river to fetch water before school and walk any miles to go to school. And I think she, I remember her feeling like, these kids are so spoiled. But from my context, I'm just like, what are you talking? I'm doing, I'm no better off than any other kid in my class. You know, I'm comparing to my peers and she's just looking at, you know, where she grew up in, you know, like I remember Halloween. Halloween being introduced to me was really kind of like, hey, we go trick-or-treating. This specifically that trick-or-treating. We're going to go trick-or-treating. And I'm like, what is this? This is like nine. We moved to Montclair. Everyone's going to different homes to go trick-or-treating. So this my- it didn't happen when you were in the other, the first place you lived? No, like we did Halloween. So I was, again, I was in a Catholic private school. And then mm-hmm. I, the other shock was going to public school. Uh-huh. Like that was the first <laughs> time being there. I was like something simple as not being in uniforms, which my parents are accustomed to students being in complete in uniforms. The other shock of like having to dress a kid for a different look for every day, five days a week was like, you know, a challenge for both of us. So as far as like, like Halloween, for example, we in Catholic school, all they did was like dress you up as a princess, but you stay, it was a, a in-class party. The concept of trick-or-treating to go to other strangers' homes to get candy from them, that was where my mom was like, what are you talking about? This is not happening, you know? And I'm like, no, I'm having, or this is the beginning of me having to negotiate and have to really learn how to advocate for what I feel like, okay, there's a part of this American experience. If I don't really fight for this, for example, she thought it was like the devil's holiday, right? She's like, these kids are running around and dressed like skeletons. Like, what is this thing? And to your point about voodoo culture, I was like, and the religion, voodoo, she was very, she grew up very much Catholic. So for her perspective, she's like, I want nothing to do with anything that looks like you're playing with something that looks anything remotely devilish, satanic or whatever. And I'm like, it's not helping my case when kids are again, are dressed up as the devil, you know? So I'm like, look, I'll dress up as a princess. Just let me go. I was like, <laughs> I want to have access to this experience. So I would say like in my family, my mother being saying no to everything. And I realized she said no, because of not knowing the land that she's on, not knowing the context of whatever, like she doesn't know what's benign and what's actually a serious thing here. Right. And so I had to be very much like vocal about like, look, I think it was the first time I had to be like, push back and be like, I have to experience things. I'm going to keep pushing like slumber parties or like, you know, there are things I'm like, it's not really anything bad. I'm trying to explain it to you. I had to figure out how to get you to understand. And my father was super helpful in that where he got it and was able to help negotiate things. You know, even something simple as 
gymnastics, you know, for her, young women are not supposed to be running around with their legs split open. That makes any sense. I'm like, Mm -hmm. but it's a split mom. Mm -hmm. You have got to do this as part of this sport, you know, and stuff like how she thinks women's roles and how am I, she moving with my body. When I look back at it now, I'm like, whatever my mom kept saying no to everything, it forced me to have to, to really like figure out why I wanted to do it anyway. So I'd have to explain and like, kind of fight, advocate for myself. That advocacy, I would imagine self-advocacy really came heavy uh-huh. with my relationship and you were, with my mom. And you were the eldest? No, that part. Because <laughs> like, I would have thought if you were being disciplined this way, you were laying the groundwork for an easier life yeah, for your siblings. I laid the groundwork for my sister, my younger sister and younger brother. My older brother was uh, born in Haiti. He didn't come to the US until I was nine. He was 11. Mm. And that's when... I so for the, my first nine years, I what, wasn't aware. Like I don't remember my mom ever mentioning that I had an older brother until literally we went to go pick him up at the airport, and I was like, "What is going on?" You know. <laughs> so that was, I think my I thought I was the eldest. I moved as the eldest. I'm the oldest daughter, but I moved as the first child. And I having my brother come in, I think was like, "Oh wait!" Like it was like the first time I think I had to question my reality, where I was like who are these people, my parents, not telling me this really information? Like, what's going on? Like, what's happening here? I think that was my real first understanding of like, wow, the impact of immigration. At the time, I think even still now, there was a 10-year wait for you to file before you could actually come to the States. And the impact that this has, and it affects every patient family member who's dealing with that very differently, where you're either like your wife is left behind, your husband's left behind, your child is left behind. There's always, there's a gap in Mm -hmm. I think what I realized is that my parents really had, I, I was their first trial in, this, in the American experience because they consistently saw me every day until my brother came in. And then he was able to give me more context to like American culture from an outside perspective where he could catch nuances that I was raised in that I couldn't see. And then he was like the language, you know, like asking me why there are certain words that like write are I. G-H-T and W-R-I-T-E. Like, why do they sound the same, but they're spelled differently? And I'm like, I don't know. I, that's a great question. You know what I mean? I'm like, having me realize what is, what is the English language made of? I have no idea when so much of, in America, the idea of intelligence is really based on you knowing how to read and write in this language. And it doesn't seem to include knowing other languages as much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that was, a, that was interesting. Yeah, well, we blame the Anglo-Saxons for that. Big Scottish. Yeah, we, we, yeah. we had to assimilate that <laughs> language as well. We're all in the same, right. the same boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was it. That was uh, it. Okay. So as you were talking, it made me think we interviewed mm-hmm. a woman called Cristina Jimenez from Ecuador, came here when she was uh, young to Queens and driving mm-hmm. the Dreamers program. And we had an amazing conversation with her around the work that she's been doing and the, the ongoing challenges of that. Mm. Did you fall into that category? No, I came in with full citizenship. So my mother got it before I was born. So That's I didn't brilliant. really have, yeah. So again, in many ways, my experience, as I was like, my specification culture experience is so different. I didn't deal with it personally from my angle. I just dealt with immigration from witnessing how it's affecting everyone that's around me in my community and in my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, that was definitely a privilege that I do have. Like, you know, like something simple as 
you don't realize how much ID identification is being asked of you in like the most subtle, like the library card, you know, like it's like you just, you want to do something and just like, Hey, let me get a library card. Someone's like, I need ID. I need proof that you exist here. And it was just such a, I can see how like, even I have friends who are part of the dream act who are like trying to navigate something simple as when they're getting jobs, they're like, they can't get unemployment. They can't mm-hmm. rely on the government for anything. I've been, I've been really fortunate to be able to get like, even for college, to be able to qualify for financial aid. Like I didn't have to deal with that, you know? So that was very much a fortunate like case of events that happened within my family that they were even able to get that. That's amazing. And then your, bro- mm-hmm. your brother was okay as well. Yeah, same. So it was just kind of like, we've, again, you file for everyone in advance. The, the real challenge. Your mother is, was on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. like it was very much like we have got to tap the resources that we have in our community to figure out how to make this work. And I also to be like the timing, right? It's like very early 80s. The way America feels about immigration has really fluctuated over like, I mean, the centuries, but like mm. specifically, I want to say in the past two decades, it's kind of like things are stricter. I feel like it's a, a far, far harder and stricter to get in now. And again, they, and I think the biggest issue is like, you know, you allow people to come in, but then you want to really stifle every opportunity they get to like actually strive here, you know, and they're, and they want to, but yet you paint a narrative on TV as if no one wants to contribute to society when they really are like, doing above and beyond something simple as the immigration test. My younger brother was telling me how he was like, you know, his government teacher asked that had the students in class take the immigration test and citizenship test. The citizenship to ask you basically a bunch of questions about American history that most people in America who are born here don't know. I didn't, I didn't have to look at it until my mother was doing hers. And I'm trying to like, you know, like help our cousins and our families out. We're like looking at it. And I'm like, I, I don't even know this. They're like, how do you not know? Aren't you born here? And I'm like, they didn't, I don't know this. They didn't teach me this. I don't know what president this is. I have no, you know what I mean? So it was the first time he was realizing in his class how there's so much expected for someone who does not know, who's not from this land, who does not know this culture, who does not know this language to know something that mm-hmm. people who are from here are not aware of themselves. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. In terms of your, your personality, between your mother and father, whose characteristics have you assimilated more? I thought it was just my dad at first, but I'm realizing very much it's like, uh, I guess a blend of both. So like, I think from my mother where her sense of spirituality and faith, mm-hmm. really, you know, hers is very based in religion, very, very much religious. Um, and I think what I've gotten from her was like some kind of like sense of stamina and having faith and like staying focused and moving forward and doing what you need to do. But you knowing that you are not, you alone are not doing this. She's very clear. Like, I just can't leave this earth thinking that you believe you are doing everything. You know what I mean? Like you're have, you're being assisted by some greater energy and it was really, as a kid, really hard to embody that and try to understand what that was. I thought I just had to like go to the front of the church and be like, I believe, you know, <laughs> it's like, that was like what I was doing. And she's like, you're pretending. And I'm like, I don't know what, what do you want me to do? I don't, know, I don't get it. But I realized that she gave me that, like her faith was just such a strong way where I feel like, oh, wow, you really use this as a center grounding of your life. So that was interesting. And that was really helpful for me to eventually come to, to really understand like, yeah, I'm not, I'm meeting everything halfway. This universe is doing the rest of it. You know, it's not really all me. And there is some kind of like court, some kind of synchronicity happening here. You know, if I'm paying attention, 
Mm-hmm. My father, I think I got his levity. He was just always a jokester, like like call the house and like make up little silly voices and like prank us like in his own phone. I'm like, dad, it's you. He's like, hello, <laughs> is, is Linda there? And I was like, it's you, dad. <laughs> you know, like his levity was really helpful. And also like nasty. I mean, his thing was very much like I can do anything, you know, with focus and very much like even how we got our home in Montclair, you know, we very much lived in apartment buildings for a long time. And then that's, and everyone I knew lived in apartment buildings. And then I remember, I think we were, he was eyeing the house that we have now. And originally it had these two sisters that were living there. The house was given to them by their mother who had passed. My father wanted to get the home, but we didn't know like the house needs some repair. And so for in order for him to get the, the property, the bank was like a certain amount of repair needs to be done or we won't give it to you. So what he did, he negotiated with the, with the two sisters, the owners at the time, hey, I'm going to come in on my weekends and do the repair work myself and try to submit again for the home. If it doesn't get taken, you know, if they don't receive it, then, you know, it's a loss. So they were like, you, you could work on the house, but as long as you, you know, you don't ask us. To like pay reimburse you for your efforts, go on ahead. So it's almost like he like he worked on a home as if it was gonna be his before he it, before it was. And then when it got to be his home, it was like the first time I got to see how someone who has like a vision of something like this is going to happen. This is how I'm gonna focus on and then actualize it. That was impactful for me. Mm. Where I realized sometimes you just gotta move as if it's here. You can't. It was like a, his. His version of faith was very much in the physical world. Like, you know, I'm going to take action as if it's here and I'm not going to waver in that way. And I think my mother's faith was very much in like focusing on holding the energy of like everything all is well, you know? So it was the two of them together were able to handle that. And I feel like I tapped in to that very much, you know, I'm like, look, all is well, all is well. I was like, it's going to work out. I'm like, if I can just remember this, I won't get sidetracked. Okay. That's interesting. We always ask the question about abundance and scarcity and you said that mm-hmm. your parents protected you from maybe maybe the lack of resources that they had initially mm-hmm. but how do you reflect on those that time growing up again so i didn't realize there was lack until we moved to the town we moved into where i'm in class i'm, sh- I'm in a class with a very wide range of i think classism i will say is being introduced to me mm-hmm. for the first time is really what it came down to. So I felt like we were great, you know, the whole time. I'm like, I'm in the same town. My thing was, if we're in the same room together, what is that? Like, what could you have above me? We're, we're being educated in the same class, you know, whether your family is the, you know, works at any like Merrill Lynch or some big bank. I was like, and my dad is like substitute teaching and cab driving. We're here together, you know? So I felt like, there is when I realized, I think I started to start comparing myself to everyone else where I'm like, well, they have like this mansion and everyone, she has her own bathroom and her own bedroom. And she's like 10, you know what I mean? I'm like, what is that what it should look like? You know, I want to say a mix of that and TV, right? Like I was just kind of like, is that what, like a big, at the time, a lot of families said times were really big in the 90s. So it was just very much like I'm seeing people in these houses and I'm like, is that what we should be doing? So I think when I was younger, it was just everybody around me was doing the same things Mm -hmm. I didn't really know. But the scarcity mindset came in, I would say then by comparing. And I wish I could have just had a 
it took me a couple years to start to have like, okay, look, no one's better than you here. I was just like, everything was different. Just be- it took me actually getting to like go on these play dates and being in these people's homes and then realizing, oh, like their family, their parents are arguing mm-hmm. just like any other parent I've ever seen. They're having their own issues. It's just in a different setting. So it took me a while to like recognize that we were actually really similar, just the environment looked the same and not for me to not get confused about that. I think now I've worked really hard on scarcity mindset, I would say around the belief that struggle needs to happen for abundance to come my way. And that I think was because I saw Mm. my parents having to like figure out like, okay, how are we going to get these bills? How are we going to do that? And that was a really big part of the conversation. I think I've noticed more of the scarcity mindset actually happened when we got the house. (laughs) I think it was like, I think it's homeowner stuff that I'm looking back in hindsight, like your mindset, it was just kind of like, in hindsight, if stuff like we need to get the heater changed, the roofing needs to be done. So they're always stressed about like home repair. So I used to think, is it the home, like having a home is like, I used to think like, is it having a home worth it? That makes like a house worth it. It seemed like there was less stress in our family. And now I'm like, oh no, it was just, it's worth having the home. That home has been like the, this, that home is where anyone who's migrated from Haiti that's come to stay has stayed with us first before they were able to go anywhere else. And it took me a while to realize like that, how like valuable that was, wow. you know, for us. I think it was just me, my real scarcity mindset, I feel like I could work through was around how money comes to me. I think that came after graduation in college when I realized I had to start working a corporate job. And the corporate job is what my parents thought was the ideal. They were like, you need to get you a desk job. Mm -hmm. Like that, look, whatever it is, like at first my father was very much, actually, you just need to be a doctor. (laughs) Like that was really the mindset that pivoted. I changed my, I was like, I'm not, like I changed my trajectory there when I was applying for college. I realized that wasn't actually something I really wanted to do. But I think that's an example of like scarcity mindset really is like, how do I kind of my parents want me to be well in in the future and be okay financially sound. And the way they think I should do this is simply to be a doctor. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I was applying for Howard university at the time. And I was like looking at the major and we had to pick one. And I was like, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be like, I had, we had did this UMDNJ university of medicine and dentistry of New Jersey had did a program with our high school where you could get these uh, biology credits, but you would do it through their they would teach you basically like biology through, but their med students would teach it. And you got an opportunity to interview doctors while you were there. And I remember this one doctor who was so, he was, he was usually on call and he was so excited. He's like one weekend that he didn't, he wasn't called in. He was like, he got to mow the lawn, I remember. And I remember being like, he was just so excited. He was like, I got to stay home. I got to mow the lawn. And I was like, he's excited about staying home. And I realized what he's excited about is he was excited about having time to do something mm-hmm. so simple mm-hmm. as care for his home that it was a huge deal. And I think I realized at that moment, I'm like, this is not the kind of life I want. It was a little bit challenging to kind of like tell my dad that. I kind of like snuck in and went undecided. And when he found out, he was just like, what are you doing with your life? You need to stay the course. So many people that we speak to that come from immigrant families are pushed mm-hmm. into either law or into medicine. It te- seems to be just the standard shortcut mm-hmm. um, perception of that generation to think it doesn't matter if they're not happy, that they're going to be successful, they're going to be wealthy, but their, yeah. their mental wealth or health and their that uh, part, capacity yeah. is, is 
That part. Yeah, exactly. And it's not, it's, I remember thinking like, I'm not the kind of doctor I want to call. Like, you can't call me at three o'clock in the morning because you broke your leg. And I was like, and that's not the kind of doctor I want on me <laughs> when I break my leg at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I need someone who's got, who wants to be there. And it just made me see how many people and also immigrant families, right. Who are any, and also anyone who's, even if you're born here, like anyone who comes with a scarcity mindset that think that if you do this, and do this role, it's your ticket, your golden ticket out of any situation. Having the, a medical community or you know, a bunch of lawyers build off of people who are just here to because they wanted to please their parents is just dangerous, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ultimately, that's where it is. I have, I'm the one living it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I felt like I, I came to the conclusion where I was like, your wildest dream, like your dream really is not to, for me to be a doctor. Your dream is for me to have less strife and have options that and doors open for me that were not available to you. And I yeah. see that's the case. And that was how I had to pitch it where I was like, there's, there's other opportunities here and I want to see what it is. And I think thing about that is that it kept me very narrow, like a very narrow focus. I, I didn't actually spend time exploring what other options there were, you know, until I got to college. And even then I'll say like, I was very focused on the money because I was like, well, if that's what they want, you know, to ultimately there's gotta be other ways to get money. So that's when I entered marketing. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I'll go to the business. I'll go to the business school. I transferred and did that. And I did that. And then afterwards I was like, okay, well now we got to do look for the corporate job. It wasn't until like, I'm literally sitting at my first job. I think it was at Disney ABC. Mm-hmm. I was so excited. I got this job and I'm sitting there and I'm just like, it's not bad first job to get in New York. I just felt like, oh, things are coming, you know, falling into place. And I got introduced to media. And that was when I started to learn about like how commercials work, who's paying for it, how much money is behind trying to get me to see the world a particular way, you know? And I was just like, oh, wow, like this is wild because I was the kid who'd watch an average, who'd watch a, if I saw that shampoo, Pantene Pro-V commercials, if I believed that shampoo would make my hair look like that, not recognizing after going on a, you know, an advertisement shoot, I'm like, this whole thing is just (laughs) completely doctored up. And I was like, wow, I don't know. It almost felt like America should know this. Like, this is not right. You know, because you're like, you know, you should know that like what you see on TV isn't true. And I think other people knew that, but I didn't as a kid. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like, oh, wow, you have to question everything. Yeah. So that was like a big deal for me. And I think if you come from a space of scarcity, what happens is like it doesn't look like it's, it doesn't always look like, oh, I'm afraid to spend money or I don't think I'll always get money. It, can, it, it looks in subtle ways. It's like, what's the energy that is powering any choices that you make in your mm-hmm. life? And that was something I had to unravel where I was like, I, I need to be aware of when I'm making decisions because I'd have, essentially it's just fear energy. Scarcity is just fear energy. Anything that I'm scared of and I make a decision because I'm trying to prevent something from happening is, has usually landed me in a situation where I was unhappy and I had to figure out how to like unravel that. And I'm just kind of tired of unraveling things. So I'm like, how about I just start making decisions based on things I actually want to do and go from there. It's a more easeful route for me. Okay. As my partner calls it, the path of least resistance. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, that's what I want. I'm intrigued when I was doing some research on you. Where was mm-hmm. the interest in design? When did that happen? Yeah. Because it's something so, you'd talk at school of where you're, were you interested in art? Were you interested in 
Yeah. Uh, where you, what were you, what were your strengths? And you know, yeah. I mean, obviously, okay. parents pushing you into something like medicine, you don't usually expect them to be really pushing hard in the sciences. My town, luckily, was a very much the town I grew up in. A lot of the art programs were really a big deal. You know, they were really a huge focus. So you still got to take art classes. So it was like a big deal where. I got to take them, but it wasn't something that was, it was for fun. It was really nice to do. I remember taking like a wood shop class or just working on uh, taking a painting class. It didn't seem synonymous with money. So by the time I got to like, I was applying for school, I was again, focusing, just getting the money and didn't include arts as an option. It wasn't until my last year in college, my last semester, on the schema of like what classes you need to take at every semester, there was requirement for you to take like one credit course that had like a three credit class that had nothing to do with your major and it could be on anything. And I had went to the school of fine arts and I forget the professor's name, but I was begging him. I was like, I want to be in your art class. It was two, two days a week, three hours. You would just paint. And I was like, can I, and he was just like, till this day, School of Fine Arts, for the most part, you do need to have like a, a portfolio mm. and you had to apply to really be part of the art program. And I'm like, look, I'm, it's just let me, please. So you let me in. And for, it was like three hours of just focusing on just painting. You just play jazz, you teach us technique, and then we just got a free paint. And I remember feeling like, I can't believe this is my last semester of college and this is the, I'm just now seeing this. I wish I saw you the first week, the first time I got here. I would have changed my whole like trajectory. You know what I mean? I would have changed it into art and I didn't. And it was just like, oh, it was so wild, you know? And I was just like, and I, it was that and another class I took about architecture. It was a class I took about architecture of the study of like architecture. And I was, I'm in Washington, D.C., right, for school at Howard. So we got to do tours around the row houses and like what, like what it means for this type of home to have this kind of detail on it, you know, like what were they trying to convey to the public? And, you know, it like, it was such a, like, I loved that course because I loved homes and I loved architecture. And I, in the sense that, you know, specifically in the town I grew up in Montclair, I love taking walks around. Yeah, I came from like a East Orange was like more city and it's apartment buildings. But in Montclair, it was very much like these beautiful homes and you could just like kind of walk around and take in architecture and to have someone break down and like there's a study around it to me was just like mm. that broke down like these designs are not just here just for beauty, but they also have other purposes. So that is where I was like the seed of it started. But then again, I'm focused on money. So then I go to, I go through media, I go through media. And I think it's not until I want to say maybe six, seven years in, in the whole media world, I'm introduced to a friend who is a freelance graphic designer. And I was like, what, how are you at the time? My whole focus was like, how do I get out of the office? Like, how do I not be tethered to the nine to five schedule? And I didn't know anyone who was doing because everyone I knew in my community was a nine to fiver as well and in the corporate realm. And he was the first quote unquote artist that I met. And I was like, what, what, is, what is this portal? Like, what's going on? And he's like, yeah, I always did art as a kid and I just did graphic design and I work from home. So at the time, there was a program called Shillington Design School in New York. They were based, I think, in London and Australia. And they did, it's like a one-year boot camp, essentially, of design to help people transition into that career. 
So at the time I was working at Vimeo, Vimeo, which I loved, love, 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 love working at. I love the company, but the role I was in wasn't like campaign managers. Again, working with advertising, like trying to help advertisers spend money on something where I'm like, this isn't it, where I'm watching the video team have yeah, all the this fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to be, I want to sit yeah. over there. How do I do this? You know? So the Shillington Design School was the bridge where I was like, okay, let me take this and take these classes part-time for the whole year and then build a portfolio. And that was where I just learned like how these images are really made and I get to do it, you know, before I was critiquing it from a media perspective, but now I'm in it to understand like how people really visual design affects everything that you deal with from this. It was the first time it was introduced to me as art, as a way to design for solutions. So if there's a, if, that even a stop sign, that is a work of design. We need to let people to know the problem is like we need people to not run into each other at the corner and to like pause for a second so they can see the cars are coming on either way. What can we do there visually for people to see that no matter where you are, you know, what language you know, you can kind of understand like, color red makes you stop, you know, like you're like, what's going on? This must be a warning sign. Uh, there was a great, um, I can't remember her name, but in the 1950s, it was a, mm -hmm. uh, one of the early female designers in the UK. She was basically assigned and did all of the UK's freeways and all the signage oh. around it, responsible for everything. And, oh, and it wow. still lasts to this day. And it's amazing when you look at it and you see, because you take it for granted. The only time you ever really yes. notice it is when you're in an airport in another yeah. country that, yes. where you can't understand language and you're like, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it, is, it is something that very few of us think about. I'm really appreciative of anyone who takes time to just be thoughtful about it so that it can last. You know, I'm realizing, I think I used to think it had to be really showy, you know, and they were like, sometimes it's like the best design is the one people don't even realize has been designed. Mm. It feels like it's always been there the whole time. So that's really helpful. And it's like, I'm realizing that was, yeah, because I, I, it made me look at my visuals very differently. I never even thought about, I was just kind of like, and again, I'm now I'm in New York. So I'm like, especially if you go to like Times Square, there's nothing but images at you. And you're like, oh, this is, was this thoughtful? Does this person think about it? What are they conveying? So that was really how design happened. And it was just really, I'm so glad, definitely. It's been really a powerful discipline. And it was almost like a back way into art when it, but it was like, I think I didn't realize, I thought art feels great to do like painting. I love the painting and I love the relaxing aspect of it. And I think at the time I thought something, if I'm going to do it, it needs to have some utility or usefulness or functionality. And I think that was my way of like trying to like make art seem like, okay, this is a better path for me to go to because it has purpose. But the realizing even in the painting and the calm in like something paint just painting just for calmness is also useful. Like my own care is very, is also very, very useful. And that's important for me to focus on. And that's when I started to like, from then on, I started to, fish, to try to like pivot and like how to focus on making myself feel good and whatever it is that I'm doing. Cause mm -hmm. it's less about what the work was. Eventually it was just like, we just want like, how are you feeling and whatever you, wherever I'm at, it will reflect in my work. If I'm in a bad mood, my work will, it'll show that way. And I was just kind of like, that I think was when like focus, like that focus came. That's a good point to pivot mm. to what you're doing now, which yeah. under, uh, under lindarislin.com, yeah. you, you have a relationship, open relationship coaching company. Okay, we'll leave part one there. 
If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKayley and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative and seek out serendipity. See you next time. <laughs>